Well, hello and welcome to the first National Review's Capital Record of 2024. I am so excited to bring in the new year, excited for what the year will hold. I hope you enjoyed the end of the year recap we did right before the holidays. Um, if you didn't listen to that episode, I'd love for you to take it in because I think it really captured a lot of the intent and goals and beliefs of uh, what we're doing here with Capital Record. And now we're going to kick off the new year. And what better way to kick off 2024, a presidential election year, than talking about everybody's favorite subject, politics. Uh, this isn't a political podcast per se. Um, I'm a center-right movement conservative. National Review is, I think, the vessel of conservatism in post-war America for 70 years. Um, and yet I do focus on matters of economics, public policy, um, and, and particularly where it is necessary to defend capital markets and defend the system of free enterprise that is so often under assault from both left and right. Uh, nevertheless, there is a significant overlap with a lot of those things in that agenda in the world of politics, and there's no one I could recommend more to kick off 2024 with a discussion of these things than my friend Dan Clifton, the Director of Public Policy Research at Strategus Research. Dan is a principal at Strategus. He is uh, one of the most astute commentators on matters of policy and uh, political reality um, of, of anyone I know. And I think that uh, you're going to really benefit from this discussion. We'll go all over many different places, topics, possibilities, avenues. And uh, you may like some of what you hear. You may dislike some of it, but I promise it'll all be honest, objective, and informative. With that said, let's bring on Dan Clifton. So with that said, allow me to bring in the Capitol Records 2024 with, I believe, now a three-time uh, repeat guest, uh, one of the foremost experts on public policy and their interaction with markets, uh, my friend Dan Clifton of Strategus Research. Dan, welcome to Capital Record and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's an honor to be here, and I'm happy that we can kick off 2024 today. I, I hope that uh, we don't regret saying that because I have a very strong feeling that uh, 2024 has nowhere to go but down, and I don't <laughs> refer to markets when, when, right. when, when I say that. I'm completely agnostic about where markets may go, uh, the unknowables from here, but the political world yeah. strikes me that we may be in for a doozy of a year. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And, and you know, th just let's start off in the context here. You have about 40% of world GDP voting for a new head of state or current head of state in 2024. This is probably going to be the biggest election in terms of population in world history mm. at a time when you have slow growth around the world. Growth's been stronger here in the U.S., but it's been weak around the world. You have an anti-incumbent populist environment building and geopolitical pressures that are leading to a multipolar world. So from just from that perspective alone, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and unexpected volatility that will result from that politically and on a policy basis. Then if you dig down one step further and you look at the U.S. election, obviously we're going to have a presidential election here. And I believe that this is going to be a world election 
based on the U.S. election outcome. And you can already see this. If you take the Mexico stock market relative to the S&P 500, it's moving almost perfectly in line with Biden's odds of being reelected, showing you that foreign policy between Trump and Biden will have a very outsized impact on how these countries uh, end up. Europe's very worried about tariffs. They're very worried about Ukraine. Um, you have all the outsourcing countries that are up for re-election or up for election this year and are very dependent on that. So India, uh, Taiwan, which is coming up shortly, and uh, and uh, Mexico, you know, so this is this is as good as it gets for a policy analyst. But to your point, there could be a lot of a lot of volatility associated with it. So I suppose there's sort of a bifurcated conversation, isn't there, about our own election um, and markets and the economy. And that is what happens in the aftermath of some of the electoral results, what the lay of the land is. In other words, if right now I had a crystal ball and I could say, hey, Dan, in November, the Senate's going to be this, the White House is going to be this, the House is going to be this then there would be a sort of policy portfolio that we could be looking at in the aftermath of the election. But I think a lot of people are wondering about what to expect in terms of market response throughout 2024. And so I'll start with just putting a working hypothesis on the table that you can shoot down. It was my theory in 2022 as well. I think it proved correctly uh, that the midterms were unknowable in result, and therefore the markets were going to be responding in March and June and September to polling ups and downs. Um, and then in 2024, markets know now and will know in August that the end result is somewhere around the 50% mark in terms of probabilities, therefore impossible for markets to discount. Well, um, let me take a step back. Uh, I, I generally agree with your working hypothesis, but let me take a step back and, and first say that this is a presidential re-election year. And what we have noticed is that presidential re-election years are pretty strong for the S&P 500. In fact, in the last 16 presidential re-election years, the S&P has been positive for the year. So we can talk about all this volatility and all these risks, and they're definitely there. But there is a clear difference between a presidential re-election year and a presidential open election year. And, and what do I mean by that? It's about a 1,300 basis point difference between the two. Uh, on average, going back uh, all the way to the 1940s. And the reason why we think that happens is that presidents love to get reelected, and they're going to effectuate and use all the tools they have to get reelected. And but Biden's going to have some really powerful tools behind him from the general direction of the S&P. Even if you just kind of exclude Biden, the Fed is probably going to cut rates. You look at the Fed minutes, they're talking about slowing down QT or possibly uh, ending it as the reverse repos get drawn down. You have the infrastructure money coming in. You have a student loan cut coming into effect on July 1st. Um, you have uh, you have uh, oil production for a climate change president at the highest level ever in the United States to keep gasoline prices down. They're going to use all those tools. And that's going to matter for the overall index level. To your point, I believe elections are about sectors and companies and not the overall S&P 500 level. And what, if I could just surprise you here, oh, and by the way, let me just make one more point on the S&P. Usually you see a big sell-off in the S&P right around Super Tuesday. And that is right when the challenger begins to emerge. Now you're starting to put out bookends around it. And so let's just fast forward to March. 
and Trump emerges and he's beat Nikki Haley in like five of six states and he's going to be the nominee. Okay, what does his trade policy do? What is this 10% tariff that he's looking on all goods? What does this mean for the semiconductor industry in terms of their ability to sell products into other countries? Those That's the equation that's going to go on. By the way, it's temporary. And then you get this extremely awesome event right around the end of August, early September. In years where the president wins re-election, stocks generally discount and go up. They When they re-election, re oh, Biden's going to win. And when the incumbent is going to lose, you begin to see a big sell-off in the equity market again in late August, early September. And that's the market just saying, okay, we have a little bit of uncertainty coming there. But from my perspective, I love it. The wisdom of the markets to be able to see that this far out and understand that. And that's where you really begin to see the sectors play out. And that's, I think, with a presidential election, it's a little bit easier to discern, but there will definitely be some uncertainty. And there are a lot of different variables here. Is Joe Manchin in the race? Does that prevent somebody from getting 270 electoral votes? If so, then the vote goes to the House of Representatives. It's based on the new House. You know, you're going to have to deal with a lot of those issues. But if you have a clear winner, the markets are going to be able to discount that before the election. And I would argue that in some of these sectors, you are already seeing a strong correlation between the odds of a Biden win or odds of a Trump win and how these sectors are trading in hospitals, managed care, defense stocks, you know, those very sensitive political industries, which have more dependency on who the winner is going to be. You're already starting to see that. So it's important to understand what's happening this year. But the markets got it really wrong in 22. As you know, the markets tried to price in a Republican sweep in the final two months of the year, and, and that didn't happen. And there was a pretty big reversal in November. I, I wonder if there are some semantics that might be separating our takes here between markets trying to price some of these things in yep. and markets pricing them in. Absolutely. What I mean by it is, um, okay, if we had polling saying, like, if we were in August before November, and it was Obama McCain. Um, it, it, yep. You know, there, we've it, it's been a little while since we had an election where the results were so obvious. Obvious. Yep. E even in 2012, yep. um, I don't. Uh, a guy like me didn't want to admit it until election night. But there was never a time where the real clear averages in the electoral college said that Mitt Romney had a chance of winning that Absolutely. race. There just wasn't. Absolutely. Yep, I agree. And and so I can see that. But I don't know if I believe in, like, let's just put out a fake hypothetical. If I believe Biden's reelection is good for ABC sector, Trump's reelection is bad for ABC sector, and I wanted to, and right now the polling was indicating one way or the other, it strikes me as one of the most foolish things I've ever heard in finance to try to front run that, given the inevitability of electoral volatility and the uncertainty of electoral results that we've seen in all of our elections really since Obama-Romney. I 100% agree with you. Uh, we are a 50-50 country. If, yeah. if you look at 2016, when Trump beat Hillary, 75,000 voters in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, decided that Donald Trump was going to be president over Hillary Clinton. If those 75,000 people voted differently, Hillary Clinton would have won. So that's like an NFL football game on a Sunday. Now you go to 2020, Trump versus Biden. The number was even smaller. It was 40,000 
in uh, in uh, Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, if those forty thousand voted differently, Trump would have got reelected, and th that's like a, a major league baseball game. And that was on a larger base of 160 million voters, right? So one, the campaigns have become so efficient at knowing where their voters are. And what early voting has done is allowed them to get all of their voters to the polls, which makes those margins small. And now you're introducing the possibility of a third party candidate getting 10, 12, 13% of the vote, something we haven't seen since Ross Perot. Um, and the uncertainty is as wide as you can see. And I agree with you whether it's smart or not smart to be making some of those bets. I'm just letting you know those bets are starting to be made this early on. And I think investors adjust as the data changes. And and so um, some of examples could be managed care, yep. energy. We'll we'll get let's let's hold yep. some of that because there are questions about what you know again. What is the um, discounting impact one would expect in certain sectors based on certain results? But, you know, I bring up uh, the 2021, and you and I had a great conversation about this on this very podcast. We already had President Biden elected. We already knew you had a Democrat Senate majority, albeit a thin one, a technically 50-50 yep. with Kamala Harris. And we knew that the Democrats at that point had the House. And I feel that 2021... There was a, a a sense in which a lot of conversation was taking place around Build Back Better, and it was understandable. The legislation always had a chance of passing, Absolutely. And, and yet it didn't. And that even in an election result, not not forward looking, but backward looking, I don't know how people can price in. Um, given the state of Congress with filibuster realities, with reconciliation realities. Some of the policy issues, I've been hearing um, these things discussed for 25 years that a certain thing was going to happen with Medicare reform or, or drug pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the separation of powers is another element we have to talk about as well, because again, even knowing that we were going to have a Democrat sweep, we everybody got wrong. Uh, well, not everyone. That's a rare case where I actually happen to be right. But uh, that, there's too many examples of the opposite being true for me to try to say that. But, you know, the cinema mansion type factor, maybe cinema is going to be gone. We know mansions going to be gone. Yep. But moderates in the Republican side, moderates in the Democrat side, they're still going to be tiebreakers, swing voters, right? Absolutely. First, let me say you were right. Um, and for me, I think presidents get a large level of discretion when they come in. Biden used that discretion to do a $2 trillion spending yeah. package, probably one that we didn't need, but he reduced his capital and his ability to then go raise the corporate tax rate and do all the other things that we were talking about as part of Build Back Better. But that being said, David, just take a step back. I mean, the president has gotten price controls on prescription drugs. That's something the Democrats have been trying to do for 50, 60 years. Now that you're part of Medicare, they were able to do that. And he was able to do that as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And he was able to do that in a 50-50 Senate with Manchin and Cinema helping uh, helping get that bill passed, right? And so he Danny did that and Merck is at an all-time high. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, uh, I mean, you, you could see the drugs that are going to get crammed down are going to be affected by that. But those price controls don't kick in until 2026. And uh, listen, I, if I'm in the pharma industry right now and I'm looking at this election, this election looks good to them for the exact reason that you're just referencing, 
You're looking at a Senate where Manchin's gone and the Republicans are likely going to pick up that seat in West Virginia. That gets you to a 50-50 Senate. Now you got Montana and you got Ohio, maybe Arizona, right? Is that you're looking at any combination between 51, 52 senators or 50, 50, 49, 51, right? And so one, you know, the Senate's going to be gridlocked. And two, you have 18 Republican seats in the House that are up for re-election that Biden won in 2020. So you know that you're going to get some sort of gridlock in the House. And that means that you're not doing anything bad to pharma because you can't get agreement on that because you're so deadlocked, right? And I think that's going to be a prevailing theme for many of the industries, the way you're you're outlining that. And as you know, even if Biden wins, second terms are really unproductive for presidents. And if you're rational, you're just like, oh, I don't want a second term. Because I don't really get much done in that second term. Uh, and, you know, if Trump wins, he's going to be constrained by some of those majorities as well. But most presidents, when they win, have their party with them in both chambers. If you remember, the thesis in 2016 was a blue wave. Trump not only won, but they won the House and they won the Senate. And uh, and so when you get that, you get a little bit of flexibility and you can do a lot like, uh, like uh, the Trump tax cuts or like the American Rescue Plan. So uh, in terms of where we are now, you mentioned some of the things presidents can do in an election year to move the market. Um, the data you share is impenetrable. I mean, 16 presidential re-election years have been positive, uh, uh, a significant, let's call it a 10% delta, maybe a little more uh, mm -hmm. between uh, re-election years and new election years. Um, but when you talk about the... The data on a president who loses, who becomes a yep. one term, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of a historical buff here. There's not a lot of that, right? I mean, there's Trump, Bush yep. Sr., yep. and Carter. Yep. Is that is that basically it since World War II? No. Uh, so we we consider Ford a re-election. We consider uh, uh, Truman a re-election. Uh, I mean, you know, we consider the Johnson a re-election in 64. I mean, these, yeah, but, these guys but I'm saying as far as a loss. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And uh, Ford lost. Uh, Truman. Uh, Truman actually won. So, but yeah, there's uh, instances where uh, when you actually lose, um, you know, there you you start to see the market begin to discount it. And I, something that we talk it's a lot just, about. It's just hard because I think, and this is unfair because I'm talking yeah. to a public policy markets guy, and yep. daring to suggest that it might not be public policy that right. that is driving yeah. it now with a six. Absolutely. With a 16 representative sample, that's a high data point. Three or four, you can look at uh, you can look at um, idiosyncratic things. No, 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 yeah. no doubt about it. I, I totally agree with you. But the key here is that uh, if you go back and you look and you look at how the S and P trades in the final 90 days of the election, if stocks are higher in that 90 day period, the incumbent is won 85 percent of the time, and if stocks are lower, you know, then the incumbent loses. So there is something there to that. And uh, this kind of wisdom of markets, it was wrong in 2020. Stocks were slightly positive in the final days and Trump lost. But um, I tend to look at it. And if you look at 2016, which admittedly, um, you know, the markets were caught off guard if you look at the next day, but you had bank stocks rallying, you had oil stocks rallying for two weeks into that election. And if you really thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, you would not have been buying uh, bank stocks. So you know, uh, something, there is a, a wisdom of markets here. They're not perfect, um, but we tend to use them as a signal as part of our process. 
especially in light of weak uh, polling data and the, the ability of polling data just not to be able to capture what's going on in the country. But you know, it's funny, your example kind of proves the point a little bit that in addition to all the complexity of forecasting electoral results and then and then connecting it to investment thesis, that even knowing what side of the investment thesis to be on, because as you say, bank stocks wouldn't be a natural candidate to rally if Hillary was in a win. Yep. But of course, Bernie Sanders people would have said the opposite, right? That was... The, in other words, Hillary could talk, have bark against the bank stocks, but there was a movement on the left that said Hillary was closet friendlier. I assure you, as you well know, of okay. course, but the mm -hmm. Ruben Greenspan, Summers, yep. Bill Clinton mantra of, of bank deregulation, of taking down Glass de Gaulle, of the city travelers merger. Mm -hmm. You could argue the Clintons had a very favorable relationship to banking. The one that I find really intriguing, I'd love your take on, is energy. Because my yep. working thesis is that Trump is right on energy policy, which hurts energy stocks. Yep. And Biden is wrong on energy policy, which helps energy stocks. That yep. it takes away new supply which bids up the value of incumbent assets and favors Exxon and Chevron versus new players, where Trump's policies essentially amounted to the opposite. Now, now looking at Trump's, the energy sector's return in Trump years is totally skewed by COVID, Absolutely. obviously. Yep. But nevertheless, it's still underperformed in 17, 18, and 19 as well. So I 100% agree with you. Um, in 2020, for our Biden portfolio, we put ExxonMobil in our Biden portfolio. Mm, yeah, We did something very similar with uh, Obama in 2008. We had Altria in there because Altria was going to argue for FDA regulation of tobacco. They got it within six months of the Obama administration, and it favors the incumbent, locked out the competition, and it eventually led to a lot of mergers in the tobacco space. So we love those kind of contrarian ways to look at it. But on energy, it's actually interesting because it's one of those sectors where you can actually break the sector apart and put some parts of the sector in Biden and some part in Trump. I love the energy infrastructure under Trump because if we're going to produce more, we're going to have to distribute more. Yeah. And the service companies that help you produce are going to be winners in that type of environment. But the integrated, the large ones, they're going to benefit from what Biden's policies are. So you can break that apart. You can do the same thing in healthcare, uh, where you could just start breaking apart different parts of healthcare and saying, okay, I, I'm not going to say buy healthcare on Biden or Trump. I'm going to break those sectors apart. I'm going to identify the specific companies or the specific sub-industries that are going to benefit. And that's where it gets really, really interesting. I'll give you one example. You notice over the last couple of days, what you see is the China trade beginning to unwind for U.S. companies. So you had this Xi Biden ceasefire that happened on November 15th. And that ceasefire is coming undone because he's saying, Xi is saying, I'm going to take the motherland. And the U.S. is saying, we're not going to allow those lithiographs to go in there to go make chips. And you're just starting to see a lot of that trade unwind. And uh, the um, the uh, 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 life science tool companies and the med tech companies, which are pretty heavily dependent on China revenue, have all started to reverse from that. And we believe that the market's going to read Trump as stronger on decoupling from China than Biden, even though Biden's been really, really hawkish on China. And, and that's what it really gets to your point is that the market made that bet in 2020. And within four or five weeks of Biden taking office, they had to reverse that because Biden got in there, got his national security briefing, was like, whoa, 
this is the same China from, you know, the Obama years and really got aggressive and hawkish with it. So there's, it's almost impossible to quantify this stuff. And that, that's a good example where the market had to make a reversal post-election after seeing and, and it's funny, you bring up the geopolitics and the uh, national security ramifications, but also the public politics, the sentiment. Yes. Um, you know, I think that it's funny. I go back and read. They're a little too smug for me to read all the time, but a lot of the political guys talking about Trump and trade war, um, tariffs, China, their presumption was just this is wildly unpopular. It's going to kill the stock market. You know, certainly it helps them with some uh, Rust Belt voters in, in certain, um, you know, blue collar heavy states. But this is a real disaster if Trump walks into it. And uh, I, I happen to be much less populist than than our friend Jason, and 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 less inclined to industrial policy than a lot of the new right is. But I'm yeah. not really making a comment on whether or not I think it's good or bad policy. Right. The presumption from a lot of the mainstream media seven years ago was that the country was not with Trump on China. I think Biden got into office and found he couldn't change it because the country was 80% anti-China at that point post-COVID, at least in some form of sentiment. 100% agree. And I think it's a series of events. Uh, Trump started it. Uh, I can remember talking to companies and they're like, we're just focused on moving our supply chain and not growing our business. So it was definitely a negative impact from that, right? And, and there's no doubt about it. And so they started that movement away. Biden came in, he saw some of the national security implications, definitely saw the electorate perspective on that, mm -hmm. uh, is constrained by Congress. Uh, we're not lowering tariffs on China right now, at least uh, that I could see, because sure, Brown wouldn't like that in Ohio. And I can tell you the Senate race in Pennsylvania wouldn't like that either. So, you know, there's political constraints. But then you had a series of events that happened that have changed world history. You had COVID, yeah. you had supply chain disruptions. The Russia attack from Ukraine. Now, yeah. most U.S. companies can deal with the Russia market closing on them, but they looked at that and said, whoa, we have all this Taiwan exposure, and if there's going to be a similar move in Taiwan, we need to be diversified. And so what you've been seeing is a diversification out of China into other areas. The amount of U.S. imports coming into the United States from China was 21% when Trump started his trade war. Today, it's 13.5%. Mm. This is a major change. And you've mm. seen a large increase in, terror, uh, in, uh, in trade with all U.S. allies. But now you're back to Mexico being the largest trade partner with the United States, Canada being the second largest trade partner, and China now the third. And I do think that explains some of the weakness in the China economy is that they just can't replace that U.S. demand uh, with other countries that they're dealing with right now. Dan, do you expect volatility in 2024 around Trump's legal drama? Absolutely. So um, first, there's a multiple issues that we have to discuss when we talk about the legal issues. The first is whether he's going to be on ballots. We're probably going to get a court ruling on that in the next couple of days. Colorado wants to print ballots on January 5th, that's tomorrow. And there's been this kind of idea that the Supreme Court would make a decision before those ballots are printed. Maybe it comes a little bit after, I don't know. But at some point, the Supreme Court has to rule and they're gonna rule one of two ways. They're gonna say, well, 
He's not been indicted for anything. So call us when he gets indicted for something that would allow Trump to be on the ballot. Or they're going to have to make a decision or they'll make a decision that basically says um, he could stay on the ballot. and The 14th Amendment does not apply to him. Right. And so that's that, like, that would be a clarifying decision very early in January. And it would basically put this issue to rest for the rest of the year. That's but but what's important to point out, because I want to make sure you and I are going slow enough for listeners, you just provided two ways that the Supreme Court could keep Trump on the ballot. Yep. Zero ways that they could pull him, right? I mean, I think both of us are of the belief that they are not going to pull him from the ballot in Colorado. The question is only which way they go about not doing it. I think so. Um, and uh, there's just not clear evidence of it. If there was, you would see other states doing this, like California and M Michigan and yeah, so, so some of this is politics. Um, and, and by the and, way, and, I should point out, California not only isn't doing it, Gavin Newsom, who is a real, real smart political animal, yep. actually came out critical of those who no wanted doubt. to do it. No doubt. And, and, and knowing, in other words, if he's not going to get something like that, that generally a lot of the left would like in terms of meat, he may as well play the grown up in the room card. I mean, that. so that's how far gone this is from being likely to happen that even Gavin Newsom poo-pooed the idea. Absolutely. Right. So that's the easy one. Now we're going to get into some harder questions. Um, Georgia will not be decided until after the election. The, the classified documents are probably not going to be decided until after the election. So that leaves you with one very specific court case that creates the volatility you asked about. And that's the January 6th trial. That trial is supposed to start on March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday. And there's a series of legal questions that were arising about whether this trial can even start. The first is whether Trump gets immunity uh, because he was a sitting president. Those oral arguments will start on January 9th. Um, and it has to go through the appeals process and, uh, and then go to the Supreme Court. Reason that's important, David, is that if it gets delayed out, it could push out the date by which the Trump trial starts. And then the judge has to make a decision. Am I going to force the Republican presidential candidate, assuming he wins the primary, to sit in court during a general election after the primary is over? That's a much harder question. And that's why you see Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, hurrying up and trying to get the Supreme Court to rule as fast as they can and the courts to rule as fast as they can and saying it's an emergency that he get uh, seated and this goes to trial uh, in the first half of this year is very important is if the trial does not happen and Trump does not get convicted, it changes the election analysis, I think, you know, just from a perspective. If you're a candidate, you'd rather not be convicted, <laughs> be convicted. And, uh, you know, and I say that I come from New Jersey where I, that were plenty yeah. of convicted politicians in my life. But, um, you know, like you'd just rather not be. So I think Trump would get the benefit of being indicted and being the murder and really rallied the party towards him. But then he doesn't get convicted. And so that's where I think the volatility is going to lay around. One, the immunity question. Two, whether the charges that he's being brought up on disrupting a public event is a legitimate charge. The Supreme Court is going to have to rule on that as well. So you've got these two different angles that could slow this down to different angles where the Supreme Court could say, yes, yes, all this is good. And then we go to trial. And if we go to trial, there's a good chance that Trump gets convicted in a D.C. court 
in the middle of the election year. I mean, this is crazy stuff. And then you have uh, the president's son, who's also in legal trouble. So sitting presidential candidate, sitting president's child, both having legal issues in election year, there's not much precedent for that, particularly in recent times. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. So I imagine your world of political handicapping has the same rule that my world of financial handicapping does, that there's only two numbers I can never say, it's 0% and 100%. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. is the chance that Ron DeSantis surprise wins in Iowa, Nikki Haley surprise wins in New Hampshire, and this primary gets turned on its head? Um, is that, do you put any, is, I mean, I know the chances aren't zero, but is it pretty darn close to zero? So, um, first, let me say that, um, Iowa are evangelical voters. There are always surprises in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, Pete Buttigieg winning, Ted Cruz winning, people running Ron DeSantis's campaign, ran Ted Cruz's Iowa campaign. Ron DeSantis has been to 99, uh, counties in Iowa. And my belief is that the campaign doesn't believe they're going to win Iowa, right? So like the DeSantis campaign doesn't believe that they're going to win Iowa. And the other point that I would make about Trump is that this is a much, a very professional Trump campaign. Susie Wyless, uh, who for listeners don't know, Pat Summerall, the former NFL commentator, this is his daughter. Uh, that's the childhood, sound, the soundtrack of my childhood. Yes, and, mine um, too. The greatest. And, and and she's a better campaign manager than he was a sports commentator. And I had a lot of respect. Wow. For him, right. So 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 they have learned their lesson from 2016. And that's why I think Trump is going to win win Iowa, so to speak. The real debate is whether Nikki Haley comes in second or third. And if Nikki Haley comes in second place, the momentum that she will have going into New Hampshire creates an environment where she could possibly win New Hampshire. And um, if she comes in third place, which I would expect because she doesn't do well with evangelical voters, people are going to say, oh, her civil war comment hurt her. You know, there will be this over-exaggeration of everything. It's really simple the way we think about it. Every Republican president who's won, every Republican nominee who's won Iowa, New Hampshire has gone on to win. And every Republican nominee has gone on that has won Iowa, New Hampshire or South Carolina. Two of those three has gone on to win. And so I, I'm looking at this a lot more like the 2000 John McCain, George W. Bush election, yeah. where Bush won in Iowa, John McCain won in New Hampshire, and then Trump buried him, uh, Trump, Bush buried him in South Carolina. And the reason right. that's important is South Carolina is going to look a lot more like the states that are going to vote down the stretch. 
And for very interesting inside baseball, Trump changed the rules of most of the primaries. So the primaries that he thinks he's going to do well in, they are winner take all for the delegates. The ones he thought he was going to be weak in are proportional. So even if he loses them, he's still going to get a proportion of the delegates. And when you look at that math, assuming that he's going to do well, it's very hard to say he's not going to be the nominee. So that's why he's the favorite. Now, Iowa is the widow killer. Do you know how many front runners I've seen walk into national front runners walk into Iowa, lose Iowa, and that's the end of that candidacy? Some of them immediately, some of them over time. Hillary Clinton was winning in the national polls when Iowa chose Barack Obama. That was the beginning of the end for her. It's more on the Democrat side, though, isn't it? Howard Dean and, and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton um, are the two really famous ones in our lifetime. Yeah. But all the Iowa winners that I can think of, uh, for Santorum, Huckabee, uh, yep. Ted Cruz, they've ended up losing, right? Oh, you're thinking about it the wrong way. Okay. Is that, is that um, it's not about who wins, it's about who loses. And so Rudy Giuliani was the national frontrunner going into Iowa in 2008. That was the end of him. Before you know it, they're like, oh, we'll catch you in New Hampshire. We'll catch you in South Carolina. We'll, we'll, we'll catch you in Florida. That didn't work out very well. Um, and Newt Gingrich was the leader in 2012. You remember 2012 was crazy, but it wasn't Romney. And then what you see, it's really amazing. As soon as they lose in Iowa, they get downgraded around the United States. Yeah. And so yeah. The, the challenge here for Trump is if he loses Iowa, he's going to be downgraded. And we already know that there is a chance that Nikki Haley can win in New Hampshire. So, But my view is for Nikki Haley to be the nominee, she needs to win New Hampshire and she needs to win South Carolina. And if she does that, she'll meaningfully change the race. But to do that, she needs to do well with evangelical voters in South Carolina. And that's probably going to be proven a little bit tough for her. So I I, I don't want to pretend like I know with 100% certainty what's going to happen. These are momentum games. I do anticipate some surprises. But what we can do is just outline what metrics we need to see before those views begin to change. It's just anecdotal, uh, subjective opinion. That's the only reason I asked, but I'm really curious for your take. Do, do you think, Dan, that um, my, my view after 22 was this was DeSantis's to lose because for the obvious reason, he won and won big when everyone else lost and that clearly the Trump brand around his candidates was just unwinnable. It had been three elections in a row where we had suffered electoral losses and therefore, the party was now determined to quit losing. DeSantis seemed to be the best guy on paper to harmonize some MAGA sensibilities with some uh, movement establishment, you know, traditional conservatism. I hate all those words, but I think everyone knows what yep. I mean. Yep. And, and um, that the indictments served to first weaken that argument because they re-martyred Trump and then Biden's polling totally killed the main argument, which was electability. In other words, I'm not a Trump guy, Dan. I never have been, but I'm a lifetime movement conservative Republican. Yep. But one of my arguments has always been, even if other people aren't bothered by the stuff in Trump that I am, aren't they bothered by just losing and losing? And right now, it seems to me that most people not only believe, no, Trump can win, they believe he will win. 
that Biden's age, his health, the Hunter issue, you know, whatever it is, the just general unpopularity and inflation impact, all of that stuff. It just there isn't any argument for Ron DeSantis to make that if you don't nominate me, you're going to lose. Now, I still think Trump is the only guy who can lose to Biden, but that's different than saying he will lose to Biden. Absolutely. So let me just start off by saying that um, I travel uh, uh, for 11 weeks into the 2022 election. I went to every swing state. I meet with voters. I meet with clients. I meet with the campaigns. And my big takeaway coming home was there's no way Biden or, or Trump are going to be the nominee because when I would say we're going to have a Trump versus Biden race, there's no voter, young, old, race, party, pick it up and said, you know what, Dan, that's awesome. I'm excited for a Trump versus Biden race. And you see that now, 70% of voters don't want that to happen. And what we saw in the data, there's a lot of handicapping about why the Republicans didn't have a wave election. Uh, Biden overcame history by not suffering major losses despite such a low, low approval rating. We've never seen anything like that in history. People say, oh, it was abortion. Maybe some of that, some places. But what you saw was if you identified with Trump and backward looking on 2020, you lost. And if you were forward looking about what your vision was for America, you won on the Republican side. And so this is why you can have a wave election in Long Island, New York and Florida, but lose congressional seats in Ohio and Michigan where you shouldn't be losing seats because you were focused on the wrong things in New York. They're not focused on those issues. They're, they're moderate Republicans trying to win in you know, a Democratic area. And Ron DeSantis had a record of government. So now you look at it, and you, you look at all that, and you're like, well, Ron DeSantis is going to be the alternative to Donald Trump in this election. Do you know how excited we were for a Trump-DeSantis primary? I mean, just think about it, right? Like, this is it. And, um, and it just never really turned out well for DeSantis. He's a great governor. He knows every single town in Florida. He knows everything about those towns. And that's what makes him a great Florida governor. And he just wasn't ready to play on that stage on national politics. In the same, And the best way I think about it is after 1998, George W. Bush won by almost identical majorities in Texas as Ron DeSantis did in Florida. Right. And what, what George W. Bush did was he brought in Republicans from all stripes to come to Austin and meet with him and brief him. Right. I know because I worked in the New Jersey governor's office and Christy Whitman was going out there to go see yeah. uh, to go see him. And um, and uh, and 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 it allowed him to understand where the mood of the country was, where the mood of the party was and be able to kind of fashion what he was going to run on. And you didn't have any of that going on this time around. It was like, okay, I'm going to run. I'm going to be that choice. But you got to give credit to Trump too. I mean, Trump came out of the gate running national ads on Fox News that Ron DeSantis was a tax increase. Ron DeSantis is a lot of things. He's not a tax increase, right? So they framed him early on. And that's what Trump is very, very good at doing. And, um, and so there's a lot of different reasons why it didn't pan out. Now I say that I could be a contrarian indicator and this could be his bottom. As you know, John Kerry was left for dead. Barack Obama was left for dead. John McCain was left for dead. And then a few things happen in the primary and, they're, and they're, they go on to win, right? So I don't rule anything out. 
but my sense here is that the infighting between the campaign and the super PAC of Ron DeSantis is evidence it's not going the way they want it to. Well, it's a really fair assessment, and I think there will be room for more commentary and 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 editorializing, and even some Monday morning quarterbacking after um, the the campaign, whenever things do all end. The name that you didn't mention that I put in the mix, because I agree, Trump deserves some credit. Um, he went from not only the disastrous midterms, but two weeks later, having Kanye and Nick Fuentes as Mar-a-Lago. It looked to me like he was throwing in the towel, that he just couldn't possibly believe this was the right stuff. But I think you mentioned Susie and and the professionalization of the campaign. There's a lot of things that have gone gone right um, there's also a hell of a lot of good luck. Biden's age, health, the national mood. Um, but then the two words I'd throw out there that I think are underrated in this, Alvin Bragg. Yep. Because, Absolutely. you know, the Mar-a-Lago thing to me is a different case on the documents, largely because he's guilty as shit and everybody knows it. But sec but the even the Jan 6 ones and everything, there's just prosecutorial discretion issues that are really difficult, really uh, uh, gray areas. The Alvin Bragg one is absurd. It's just so preposterous that I think a lot of people that are kind of um, what what's the term anti anti-trump, you know, they're they're not anti-trump and they're not pro-trump, but they're they just, I think the Alvin Bragg thing brought them back in and they had not been there before. And so we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I think your assessment is really helpful. Yeah. Let me, let me just make two other points on it. Cause I think you're absolutely right. Is that you saw a big movement once the Alvin Bragg thing happened in Trump's numbers, you're, yeah. you're making him a martyr, right? What we started picking up in focus groups, I participate in focus group once a month and I watch voters. It's not quantitative. It's all anecdotal. But something I would never have thought of is that I started to see voters start to say our, the problems in this country are so screwed up that we don't have time for on-the-job training. And you know, I'm kind of summarizing it. Like, we need somebody who's already been there before. And that was something I had never thought of. We're like, I like Ron DeSantis. I like Nikki Haley. I like whoever, uh, Mike Pence. But Trump knows where everything is. He's going to act right away. I was like, whoa, that, that's number one. Number two is that where we really started to see the movement of what I would call the non-Trump Trump people that you referred to, is that once he started winning in the polls, the whole argument about losing went away. Now, you have to remember, Trump lost in 2018. He not only lost the presidency, he lost two Senate seats in Georgia, which allowed Biden to get his whole agenda through. And they lost in 2022, largely than them, right? This is Lose, lose, lose. If that's the case, you can argue 2016 was an anomaly more about Hillary than about Trump, right? Seriously. And now people are starting to go, oh, we can win. I can get behind this because I'm getting rid of the, the Biden folks. And I'm not sure in a year from now, that's where you're going to be. So Biden's going to start his campaign this week. This is his comeback campaign. And he's going to argue that democracy is at stake. It's going to be about democracy, abortion. And Trump being convicted, that's what his campaign is going to be about. And he's got four really big headwinds that he's got to overcome. The first is the immigration issue, which is what really is weighing him down right now, and the unwillingness to be able to do some sort of parole deal that would demoralize his base. Two is the Israel-Gaza situation, 
where you have campaign staffers trying to tell him to change his position, yeah. right? So you're actually seeing divide really hurts in Michigan. Number three is that we can quantitatively show that Biden is not getting credit for the increase in the economy. So the economy is not strong enough to attract independence. And then fourth, on top of that, he's got to figure out some way to get people excited about his candidacy, which is a lot harder to do given kind of the fragility there, right? And so um, I, I think at the end of the day, the partisans are going to come home. But if you ask me for a takeaway this morning, as dysfunctional as the Republicans are and divided, just think about the traditional supply siders versus the industrial base, just that alone, uh, the, the kind of industrial planning group, um, is that maybe the Democrats are more divided than the Republicans for the first time since Trump showed up on that elevator in July of 2015, mm, right? And, and I don't, I, I can't prove that quantitatively, but you're starting to see those splits begin to develop. And, um, and, and I think it's harder to win an election like that for since 2015, the Democrats just go Trump and they're unified. And, and is that divide, is that divide progressive, uh, squad versus, Yep. some form of a normal Democrat, or is sure. it immigration, cities versus Midwest? It's religion. It's immigration. It's right. I mean, um, you know, it's, because it's, I think the the squad divide has always been overstated because of Democrat discipline. Pelosi reined them in. Absolutely. And and um, Biden, candidly, the second he got in office, talked like the most wokey woke. <laughs> you, you know, far left, cultural left president uh, we'd ever seen. And so to my surprise, um, but now it sounds like the divide has changed a little. What uh, Do you mean it economically? Yep. Give me give me a policy example. Yep. So that divide was there. And then the Inflation Reduction Act passed and you saw the divide close into the 2022 election. What you're seeing is that divide reopen like, oh, $300 billion of climate change spending really doesn't matter at this point. Uh -huh. So if you talk to somebody like Debbie Diggle, Congresswoman from Michigan, who's you know just, a, just an expert on that state, she's got a problem because you have a large uh, Arab American population. You got, right? And, and so there's no agreement on traditional coalition of being strong on Israel and Gaza. There's an age gap. I think it's uh -huh. the age that's the biggest issue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's another one. And and that's where these issues permeate themselves. But think about this. I mean, the polls are not wrong. They're showing you a directional change where Biden is a bit weaker with Latinos, a bit weaker with African-Americans, a bit weaker with younger voters. And that doesn't mean that they're going to go to Trump. But what it means is that they are just less unified as a party. And that poses the big challenge for them going into 2024 and their ability to win this election. And all right, because you need a, you need all parts of your coalition at this point. But Dan, isn't it true that the Republicans have a probably stronger coalitional fracture? Ukraine is a great example. DeSantis's uh, inability to craft a, a coherent message. There's the sort of Tucker Carlson wing of the party. Uh, a Ronald Reagan traditional wing and then something else. 
And I'm not sure what those allying points are. I can look back in history and see the allying points around Reagan's coalition, anti-communism, free markets, uh, social conservatism. I can look back in the Bush years and certainly understand the post 9-11 consortium. It, It was a little bit more economically moderate, but still socially conservative. And then, and then right now it does seem that there's a real divide and, and maybe it doesn't matter electorally. I certainly believe the bulk of the Trump critics in 2016 and 20 ended up voting for him. But yep. I so don't, let, me, let, let me walk you through the way I see it. We're we're right. gonna we're gonna see it live in person on January uh January 16th. That's a day after Iowa. And uh like 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 how much do you go after Nikki Haley? Because that really represents the divide right there, right? She's pro-Ukraine, she probably not tough on spending. She she spent more in South Carolina as governor than any other candidate running for president, including Chris Christie, who had a Democratic legislator in New Jersey, just to give you context, right? So so it's funny, the, the, the Trump campaign argued that Nikki Haley is really the fallback plan for Democrats because they, they don't like Kamala. So now they're all going to help Nikki Haley win the primary. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a tongue in cheek, but just follow me for a minute. Yeah. Trump's got to make a decision on how much he wants to go after her. Because the ultimate move here is that when you get to June, July, conventions are coming up, you only have one nationally vetted Republican that could be your vice president. Only one. That's Nikki Haley. Because if she comes in second place, that means she beat Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, Mike Pence. Those are not easy people to beat, even with their flaws. And... She was U.N. representative and walked out of the Trump administration with a somewhat clean shirt. There's not many people who walked out of the Trump administration with with a clean shirt. Right. So she's been vetted on the national stage twice. And the rule of a vice president is that you don't want them to hurt you. Now, of course, Trump has other options. I I would put my eye on Elise Stefanik. There are other people that he can actually go with down the stretch here. But my point is you put Nikki Haley on that ticket. You've now unified the party. And if you do that, that's where Tucker says, oh, no, Steve Bannon says, no way. I can't believe we're putting a neocon on the ticket. That's where you'll see those divides. And if Trump goes full blast against her in January 16th, that's a signal that he has no interest in in doing that later on down the road. Right. And if he doesn't do that and it's just more like kid gloves, um, he's keeping his optionality open for June. And that's really the checkmate move when the Democrats are having riots at their convention and he's basically bringing the two factions together. And and the reason why I bring it up, I don't, I don't want to give him too much credit, but he needed Pence in 2016 to shore up the conservative base that he was going to do what he needed to do on judges. Today, he needs to reverse. He needs, to sought, he needs help with that suburban woman voter. He needs help in the suburbs. That's where the Republican divide is. And if he does that, and Biden is still weak with Latinos and African-Americans and younger voters, his coalition is bigger. So the decisions they make will determine the extent of the fracture that you're referencing. And I don't want to downplay it because it's huge. I mean, I see it every day. It's, uh, it's people- tough because I'm... Um- I, Donald Trump got elected president once, and all I did is predict that he wouldn't win. And so his street cred on this is better than mine. But there is a part of me that isn't sure he makes these decisions 
politically and rationally and strategically, but rather on a loyalty test. And so yep. on, on one hand, there's no question in 2016, he ended up picking one. Kellyanne Conway was a huge influence here that helped him a great deal shore up that evangelical street cred with Mike Pence. And I think you're, you're handicapping of this around Nikki Haley and the sort of neocon, you know, uh, all this, the Bannon Tucker factor. I think it's very good and, and, and interesting as to where this could go. Um, there's a part of me that just believes Trump in the end is smarter as a candidate than I give him credit for. And he won't actually go pick a Carrie Lake or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody like that that is just so clearly going to damage him in November. But I wouldn't rule it out. I, I, I again, this is the this is why Trump is effective is that he keeps everybody guessing. And that's that was the change in geopolitics is. You know, nobody really knew what he was going to do. And so it kind of restrained behavior a little bit. And yeah. uh, but this is what makes it interesting, David. And uh, I think it's going to be a wild year. At times, it's going to be fun. At times, it's going to be extremely frustrating watching these events play out. But what Trump is arguing is I was right on China tariffs, as you referenced before. Like, this is where the country's gone. So now he feels emboldened. And he's definitely going to have a lot more loyalists in there. His his pool of people who are loyal to him is actually bigger today than it was in 2016. So he's why also don't we, smart enough to know he, he needs to win. Yeah. Why, why don't we close with two market-oriented uh, yep. type subjects? First is just a real quick off-the-cuff, don't mean to surprise you with one, but what handicap for me, throw a name out. Who does, uh, if Donald Trump is elected president, who is a treasury secretary? You mentioned Nikki Haley came out pretty unscathed in the first administration. I always think her being in New York with the UN versus DC helped her with that. But Steve Mnuchin was one of the only people who started in the cabinet and ended in the cabinet. He's most certainly not coming back. I think he's very happy with his life now. Um, who does Donald Trump pick as Treasury Secretary next time around? Robert Lighthizer, former US Trade Representative. That's interesting. Uh, as a free trader, it's horrifying for me, but <laughs> I um, would have thought the same thing, except for I'm hearing so much right now of Whiteheiser being asked to drive the trade policy and actually serve in the same role he did before at USTR. It could be. Yeah. And look, I'm just I'm yeah. throwing out a name there. Right. And yeah. um, he's clearly the lead economic spokesperson for the Trump administration. And if that's the case, then tariffs are going to be the lead. He's going to be the author of the tariff policy. The problem is that they don't have the um, law on their side to do what they want to do by executive power. So right. my point is all the Trump tax cuts expire at the end of 25. How do you integrate trade policy in there, collect money from that and use it to help finance tax cuts, right? That's probably where they're going to have to go. That starts to lead into uh, Treasury Secretary. I, I do want to make this one other point that's going to make you happy, is that the, the the Trump campaign, again, much more professional Trump campaign, got so annoyed with all these people on the outside saying they speak for the Trump campaign. They do that to raise funds for their nonprofits, that the Trump campaign gave a list of economic spokespeople that the media should talk to. And Kevin Hassett was number two or three on that list. Uh, which is a, when we talk about clean shirts, I mean, he was there in the 
CEA right up until COVID. And, um, you know, you never know. I'm not saying that he's going to be the Treasury Secretary, but if Lighthizer is Treasury Secretary, who the deputy is will matter a lot because Lighthizer is going to be working on trade policy, right? So who the deputy yeah. is will matter a lot. And, and that creates a, a little bit more opportunity. And I don't want to make it out like only Lighthizer is being there, but it's when I when I watch the way Lighthizer is moving, it it has the looks and feel of what you would think would be a Treasury Secretary nominee. It's very very helpful and astute. I appreciate it. You actually ended up teasing up uh, in your answer what my final question was going to be, which is that fiscal cliff, yeah. so to speak. And, and this time I'll reverse it. If President Biden is reelected, yep. Or by the way, we haven't spent any time today on this idea that Biden won't end up being the candidate. Sure. Um, Cause I still kind of hold on to this idea that he won't be, but regardless, if a Democrat is elected president, um, are they really gonna scrap all of the expiring tax cuts? No way, they no can't. Way. Um, they, 80% of it will stay. So mm -hmm. the child tax credit, the marriage penalty, the AMT comes back full blast. They will try and have the estate tax exemption come down. As you know, they were restricted from that because of Kristen Cinema and some other uh, John Tester who's up for a tough re-election this cycle, right? So it's hard to do. But where the Biden administration is very focused on, you'll see this in the State of the Union. A lot of the focus is going to be on the State of the Union where he puts out the agenda. And he's going to talk about a minimum tax on the wealthy higher corporate tax rates, higher uh, international tax rates on U.S. companies, multinationals. Um, he's going to talk about a fourfold increase in the stock buyback tax. And what he and, and of course, obviously, letting the top income tax rate go back up to thirty nine point six. So their argument is we're going to preserve all the middle class tax cuts. We're just going to make the wealthy and U.S. companies pay for that at the end of the day. And as you know, that's going to be tough. This is very different than 2012 when all of the Bush tax cuts were expiring. And the reason is that your net interest cost today is about 16% of tax revenue. It's going straight up. And what we know is that once you hit 14% of tax revenue, that's when we flip to austerity. And we're, we're way past that. We hit that in July. But Dan, if the, if yep. the um, 37 goes back to 39.6, because your point is, and I want to not assume listeners are following the Bush tax cuts, which you were very involved with, understand very well, particularly those second tax cuts with the capital gain and dividends, mm -hmm. the sunsetting provisions were the first tax bill, and it was all or none. If yep. Obama did nothing, all of those rates went back up. Yep. He didn't have the option without a vote of Congress to let the high rates go back up, but the low rates not. Correct. Where, where in this case, they can let the 37 go back to 39.6, but then wouldn't they also lose the SALT deduction, the, the, the repeal of the SALT deduction? In other words, the SALT deduction would come back. And so for high earners in high tax states, they would actually be getting a federal tax cut if they did that. I disagree. So uh, I, your logic is perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. The SALT deduction is going to come back in mathematically, um, you really had to be making, and well, everybody's going to disagree with me, you had you had to be making like $900 million in California, New York, for the loss of the state and local tax deduction to be a net tax increase. And I assure you is, it wasn't that number because okay. yep. I speak from personal experience. Personal experience. But uh, what, what you'll see is that a lot of American taxpayers paid the AMT and the state and right. local deduction is not deductible 
right. in the AMT, right? So yeah. a lot of people thought they were losing it. And, and you know, yeah. just every taxpayer's got different, different circumstances. Um, and some taxpayers will get a net tax cut. But if we didn't, you know, you're right. As a na- as a matter of national politics, you're 100 percent right that net all these things together, AMT, salt, and the marginal rates, and blend it back to pre-Trump. Yep. The amount of people who would benefit from it going back is very low. Absolutely. However, it is almost everyone in my world. Absolutely. No and doubt about it. And that's quite interesting. Absolutely. And, and, and what, 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 what the takeaway from this is, is that as soon as the election's over and judging on when we know the winner, the market is going to immediately move to what's going to happen on the exp- expiration of those Trump tax cuts. And it's going to be a major wealth planning theme for 2025. And yeah. I don't anticipate that we're going to resolve this early. We also have the debt ceiling in mid-May of 2025. So we're going to wind up pushing everything back. We're going to wind up doing it at the end of the year. And it's going to hover over um, financial planning decisions, hover over the equity market. And who wins will be very important in determining what the outcome of how this gets resolved. And if uh, listeners could, wouldn't mind, um, uh, despite the fact that I'm the managing partner of a $5 billion wealth management firm, I never use capital record to give financial advice. But if I may, the third time being the charm with 2012 and then 2022, uh, excuse me, 2021, make a suggestion to people that if your estate planning attorney calls you in 2025 and has a brilliant idea to help rectify what is inevitably going to happen at the end of 25, yes. just wait till December to act on anything. Yes. And maybe even January 26, because if there's one thing I've seen about all the fear mongering on expiring tax cuts or new tax legislation, it is around the estate tax, which uh, both Dan and I have never once seen in our life the exclusion amount, go anywhere but higher. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Dan, we could just sit here and do this all day. Uh, part of the time, I forget we're even recording. It's just a, it's just a conversation with you and me. Your, yep. your observations are astute. Strategist research continues to be um, the leading macroeconomic source for so much information that I rely on daily. I say this on Capital Record all the time, but it's not just Dan and the public policy stuff. But, you know, Jason, macroeconomic, Jason Trenard's been on several times, a good yep. friend and incredible thought leader. The technical analysis, there's just a lot of great input. I love what Strategus does. I love these open conversations. And and obviously, we can't solve everything. There's so many unknowns, but you've really given everyone a, a lot to think about. And I greatly appreciate your time, Dan. Absolutely. David, it's an honor to be here. I can't wait to read your new book. And uh, I wish you all the best in 2024 and everybody listening. Thanks so much. Same to you. Okay, well, I promised you a, a meaty one, and I hope you're you're happy with what you got there. I um, think that Dan and I covered a lot of ground. Maybe there was a little too much, you know, Trump 2024 talk, but those things are all pertinent. You you heard kind of where some of the impact of markets lies in a lot of this. Big uncertainties. A lot of those uncertainties are because of the 50-50 nature of our nation. A lot are because of the separation of powers we enjoy um, in our Constitution, um, we just live in a very interesting moment culturally. Uh, be careful not to confuse that which one is predicting with that which one is hoping for. Um, there are all kinds of things that one could believe are going to happen that they don't want to happen. 
and vice versa. But um, as a general kind of, I think, indicator of the lay of the land and where the political atmosphere affects markets and economic reality in 2024, um, I think Dan gave as good an overview as you're going to hear anywhere. And so I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, I suspect that the election will be a less impactful mover of markets in 24 than the Fed, than economic data, than China, than geopolitics. I think there's a lot of things that stand in front of Iowa or or Super Tuesday or even you know the 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 Supreme Court rulings on Trump's trials. There's a lot of things that are more low-hanging fruit when it comes to the way markets will go and what economic reality will look like, but this is going to be a doozy of a year in the political sphere, and we'll cover it in Capital Record to the extent that it's pertinent to our mission. Our mission is defending a free and virtuous society. Thank you for listening to National Review's Capital Record, and we look forward to coming back to you next week. We have some great guests lined up for the month of January. Happy New Year. Thank you.